David Seymour is the ACT Party leader. He's a classical liberal, a former think tanker and a fellow Atlas MBA graduate and a good guy. David, thanks for joining Taxpayer Talk today. Hey, no worries, Jordan. Good to see you and uh, good to see you guys doing good work over at the union, which is not something I often find myself saying. Thanks, David. So we primarily have got you on here to talk about tax, but it will be remiss of me not to at least bring up our latest Taxpayer Union Courier poll that has ACT sitting on a record 17%. What do you think is making the ACT Party, and indeed yourself, so popular right now? Look, I think it's just old-fashioned politics. It's hearing people's concerns and their aspirations, because it's not all negative. Uh, and then just reflecting back uh, really practical examples of what, what we could do better and uh, how we can also, I think really importantly, unite people uh, rather than divide and unite people to create wealth rather than constantly dividing it. So you know, we just have a very old-fashioned view that, that our job is to try and make New Zealand go forward uh, with better ideas and one that unites people to, to make the whole boat go faster. Whereas uh, the other crowds, you know, to differing extents, they're very focused on division. Uh, and uh, I just look at this, you know, going after high, so-called high net worth people and demanding all of their um, financial details. So it's just so divisive. At the end of the day, we want people to get wealthier instead of attacking uh, people that have done well. So, you know, it's, it's just that basic philosophy. Yeah, we also want the world's best and brightest well off to come to New Zealand and things like this put them off. You've previously said that X sort of ceiling of support is around 10%. You're now closing in on the 20% mark. Do you think now that you've broken that ceiling, do you think that there maybe isn't one? Do you think that ACT could go on to become the main centre-right party? Well, New Zealand may be going into a cycle of quite significant reform. Uh, you can actually trace out our history 1840, 1890, 1935, 1984, we're, we're roughly due uh, for one of those episodes in New Zealand history where a lot of problems have built up and it's time for a change. And uh, I would say that you know if you look at the housing difficulties we've got, uh, if you look at productivity, and if you look at this question of what it means to be a New Zealander, what's a uniting identity we can all be proud of instead of constantly trying to create divisions. Uh, we've got some pretty serious challenges uh, right now. And of course, New Zealanders tend to relax for long periods. Uh, and then when things get so bad, uh, they change it all. And I suspect that we are on the cusp of a change period. Uh, and ACT is, if nothing else, a party uh, that is prepared to take a position on a policy uh, because we believe it's right. Uh, and actually stick it through, you know, next month, end of life choice comes into uh, into into effect. Um, similarly, uh, you know, the, the evidence that's come out lately on charter schools shows they're overwhelmingly changing kids' lives for the better. So um, I think it's partly the, the political cycle. Um, you know, Helen Clark, John Key, the great stagnation, uh, but the problems have been mounting up and people are ready to solve them. Do you think... Well, to take your point further, whereas Australia has had the slow and steady reform over successive governments um, of both flavours, uh, is it your theory that New Zealand or perhaps New Zealanders tend to respond to crises on a periodic basis 
rather than the sort of incremental reform we've had in other parts of the world. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, partly because it's a smaller society, partly because we've got a much simpler constitutional setup. Like, you know, I don't know if you've seen that movie, The Castle. Well, it couldn't happen in New Zealand. You can't go to the Supreme Court and cite constitutional rights. You don't have a constitution. So, um, you know, the fact that they've got a written constitution, they've got a Senate, an upper house, they've got a states and uh, that, that, you know, have separate powers as well, uh, that, that means that Australia is just really a lot less nimble and still to this day, in many respects, has worse policies than New Zealand. But, you know, it does mean that the Australian policy environment is a lot more predictable. They don't get the rapid change that we get. But nevertheless, we now have problems that have been built up and it's, it's, it's time to change a few things. So we've obviously got you on here because ACT have just announced a new tax policy. Do you want to take us through it and then um, we're going to have a bit of a discussion. I've got some questions for you. Well, look, our tax policy, uh, first of all, on income tax is that we've got to drop those rates. So you look at that 39% rate. Uh, it's not a revenue tool. It's a sort of point at someone and laugh and beat them down tool. It's, it's, it's tall poppy syndrome in the tax code. That's what that top tax rate is. They estimate it'll raise about $400 million. To put that in context, uh, the government just raised $98 billion, or 196 times that money. Uh, but that was their estimate. The, the, the $0.39 cent rate will, own, will earn less than that because... Uh, bureaucrats always underestimate the ingenuity of people adapting to their policies. So people will find ways not to pay the 39 cent rate. So that's just got to go. It doesn't raise much revenue. It does basically tell people if you do well, we'll whack you. The opposite of the values we're trying to promote. Yeah, and actually incentivizes, which what we got to, which is when, you know, because of the company tax rate has been decoupled from the top marginal rate or the other way around, perhaps, um, you know, you incentivize that sort of game playing. Yeah, you, you're right about that. Um, you know, the more complicated the tax rules are, the richer the tax accountants and tax lawyers get. Uh, it doesn't actually help the average person just trying to get ahead because they can't afford to play those games. Uh, so you've got to drop that 39 cent rate. The second thing is the middle income tax rate of 30 cents in the dollar. Uh, we dropped that down to 17 and a half. So from 14K up to 48K, uh, you're going to find that you're in a much better pace um, because you're only paying 17 and a half cents. You're not going to pay, um, you know, you're not going to pay um, 30 cents in the dollar as soon as you get to 48. Uh, so look, that's, that's basically how we'd, we'd reduce the rates and, and what that would mean for the average taxpayer, say a cop or a senior nurse, uh, is that you'd, you'd get about two grand a week, uh, sorry, a year, a year. We're not, that, we're not going that far yet, but you get about two grand a year um, back. Um, so, you know, quite substantial, about 40 bucks a week. The, the Nats have reduced the lowering threshold by uh, their proposal by $4 a week or about 250 a year. It annoyed us actually quite a lot um, because when you reduce those lower rates, um, uh, is that it doesn't do anything to the marginal rate, which is really what it's all about, because that is the incentive to work. So I put this to you and make the same sort of criticism, that by ACT focusing at the 30% rate rather than the 33% rate that kicks in at 48000 which is what the average income earner is paying on, on what, about 60 k why not go a little bit higher and then you are 
changing for the average Kiwi the incentives to work, the incentive to do those those extra hours or, or strive for that promotion, is it really because, like National, you're scared of the media saying, if you help this person but you're not helping the struggling person at the very low end of the um, uh, of the tax regime? Yeah. Oh, it's a perennial debate. And, you know, first of all, you're absolutely right. Uh, dropping the lower tax rate, as the National Party did in 2010, and as they just proposed to do, raising the threshold for the bottom rate uh, this week, is frankly a, a public policy uh, sacrilege, and they should be um, strung up and flayed uh, for proposing it. And people say, oh, hang on a minute, that's why would you be opposed to cutting a tax? The thing is, um, if you cut the bottom rate, or if you extend the bottom rate, then every taxpayer gets that money. But of course, what it means is that if you also think that you want to make sure that you help the people most in need, well, you've got less money to do that because you just gave every taxpayer the same cut at the bottom. Uh, now, of course, how do you make up for that? Well, the only way you can make up for it is to raise some other rate, probably the top rate. And so when you cut the bottom rate, what you're doing is you're making sure that the gap between what some people pay and what other people pay is, is greater. And we want tax rates to be as flat as possible. Now, you're right. That criticism could also apply to us cutting uh, the, the third rate instead of the fourth rate. So we're, we're offering to cut uh, the 30% rate that you pay between 48 grand and 70. Uh, we're not, and we're offering to cut the rate above 180 back to 33. Why don't we cut the 33 as well? You can make that argument, uh, but you're right. At, at some point, uh, you've got to ask, well, you know, how many people are paying the marginal rate uh, of, of 30 whose income is between 48 and 70? Well, I'd put it to you, that's a, it's a huge number of people where that is their marginal tax. It'd be a lot of part-timers too, in fairness. Yep, absolutely. And, but, it's also, but it's also a lot of the working poor, you know, the people that we, we really want to help, people that are just over the minimum wage, 40 hours a week, um, you know, they're, they're paying that 30 cent rate. So we're cutting that for them. So look, you can make the argument both ways, but if you cut, you know, the, the, the tax rates on the first 10 or 20 grand, all you're doing is hosing out cash um, to, to everybody. And then you end up raising the marginal rates higher than what they would have been for, for everyone else. And that's why it's just a, a crazy policy they've put forward. Yeah, I, I, I agree, obviously. The thing is, you know what the other side is going to say, which is we have this enormous debt monster coming. They may not, they may not use our language, but you know we have this big, ugly debt monster coming down the line. So if you want to have tax relief, you want to do it in a way that incentivizes growth so that they are tackling the fundamental problem which is the indebtedness of future generations. You, you also want to make some changes around uh, vaccines or um, um, tie your tax policy to vac vaccination status uh, and into the IRD system. Can you take me through that? Yeah, so first of all, a lot of good policy is just accurate pricing, making sure that the prices you pay reflect the costs that you impose. Um, and we do this with tobacco, for instance. If you buy cigarettes, then you have to pay extra tax to reflect the fact you're more likely to end up in hospital. Now, we just might notice that at the moment, uh, everyone who gets vaccinated is far less likely to go to ICU with COVID. You're actually saving the taxpayer money by getting vaccinated. So we think if you're saving the taxpayer money, and plus, you know, if we don't know, if, we, if the hospitals can handle it, then we can all open up. 
then actually you should get some reward for that. It's, it's pricing the, the action that you're taking. So we've said, if you get double vaccinated before December 1st, uh, we'll give you 250 back, bucks back on your tax return. Now, most people already vaccinated saying, look, I've done my bit, I've done everything right. Where the hell do I get a break? Um, would say, look, actually, that's pretty good. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I note that down when I fill in my tax return next, next March. Uh, but there'll also be a lot of people who aren't vaccinated right now. And what we'd do is we'd say, look, part of your my, my COVID record when you get your second jab, uh, we'll put 250 bucks in your bank account. You just get vaccinated, help the rest of the country, and we'll give you 250 bucks now. Uh, oh, so you're not wedded to it going through the tax system, because that's what I yeah. wanted to ask you about. Why not call it a handout rather because we than like to focus framing on, it as a tax payers. You know, we, we actually want to help people. And, of course, a whole lot of people that have already got vaccinated, and I dare say that they're often people who are actually paying the tax, um, they just want it to be administratively simple. And so it's as simple as when you get your tax done next year, you check a box, they, they match it with your My COVID record and, and you get 250 bucks. So we're making it totally simple for all those people already vaccinated who are taxpayers. Um, but we're also introducing something for people who may not be so organised. Evidently, they haven't got themselves vaccinated. We want to give them an incentive too. Fiscal cost, it'll reduce uh, government taxes by about a billion dollars if 4 million people get it. And if 4 million people get it, then we're all sweet. Um, <clears throat> but uh, in terms of what it means for New Zealand, uh, if it saves us a couple of weeks lockdown, it'll easily pay for itself. So just to clarify, your system is the people that are not vaccinated and want to get vaccinated will get the $250 in the pocket. The ones that have already been vaccinated um, get it in, what, April or May after they've done their tax return for the current tax year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and what it means is it's you know it's a different treatment. People who are organised, probably maybe net taxpayers, uh, already got vaccinated. You know, it's just a way of saying you get some money back. Um, for people who are a bit less organised, um, well, it's a way of saying here's some cash right now that tends to motivate behaviour. But frankly, at this point, um, if, if you've done the right thing, you know, you're sick of following the rules, um, I don't think people are prepared to sit back and watch the stragglers get rewarded for being late. Uh, so that's the first thing. Second thing is, uh, as you guys at the Taxpayers Union will be very well aware, the government's just taken $13 billion more tax than, than the previous year. Now, I know there was COVID the previous year, um, but actually, it's, it's, yeah, but it's something like $12 billion more than the, than the year before that. So record tip take by the government. Um, and, of course, it's partly driven by inflation. GST is up, income tax is up because prices are up. 15% more there, um, thereabouts. And uh, I, I think, you know, frankly, if there's going to be a real squeeze on the cost of living, uh, then we actually need to get some of that cash back to the people who are trying to buy stuff in this inflated market. I think we're, we're in for some very bumpy times with tax, uh, mainly because that we've got an activist government that is determined to try and reshape New Zealand society as a socialist country and what they're doing with this um, tax fishing expedition where they've written to 400 people saying, tell us everything about your financial purposes, and if you don't, you're in big trouble, uh, is absolutely disgraceful. And there'll be people on the left who think, ah, this is great, we're going to pry into those rich pricks affairs and find out what they've got, and then we're going to shake them down and take it off them because we're going to have a more equal society. Okay, that's cool. If that's what you think, then I'm sorry to hear it, but whatever. Um, let me put it the other way. Imagine a different government was in, 
and said one of the biggest problems in New Zealand is people on benefits having far too many kids that they don't look after and create a cycle of poverty. We're going to use the exact same power to find out about the marginal propensity to consume fast-moving consumer goods by beneficiaries to find out how we should redesign the tax and transfer system. In other words, we're going to find out how much of beneficiaries' money gets spent um, on takeaways, ciggies and booze. Uh, and then you know what we're going to do? Just like this government, we're going to release the results of this survey three months before an election. Um, now, yep, yep, so to invade people's privacy, to use taxpayer funding, yep, to, to, to assemble uh, a whole lot of propaganda to support your party's policy in an election year. I mean, it's actually, it's just breaking so many rules, it's difficult to, to work out where to start. Um, needless to say, ACT would not do that and would certainly be uh, repealing this pretty disgraceful law, which was rushed through under urgency in six days during December. I'm proud to say I'm on the record in Parliament uh, saying this would happen at the time. I actually thought they'd go after trusts, but they've gone after it much more widely than I expected. Well, they actually are. We have Mike Shaw from Oliver Shaw uh, joining us to discuss this very thing on the podcast next week. But New Zealanders are going to be shocked uh, who those of us who have a family trust or a home in a family trust, the extent of information uh, you'll have to provide next year because the third section of that piece of legislation um, contains all those those new requirements. We, we might leave that for another day, but there's another matter in the news which is relevant to ACT, uh, and that is Labor and National forming this grand coalition on the Resource Management Act to stop councils preventing subdivisions, effectively creating a right for quarter-acre properties to build, or their owners, to build uh, up to three dwellings, three storeys high, uh, in our major centres. ACT and yourself have obviously long campaigned on rights to build and property rights, but you've criticised the policy. Tell us why. Well, it's completely nuts. I mean, first of all, uh, the, the, the stunt is all the politicians are working together. We're putting aside our differences for the greater good. The only problem with that is that in order to achieve it, uh, they had to keep it a secret. So they didn't work together with, I don't know, councils, utilities, um, or actually anyone else involved in the housing industry. Uh, it was top secret and a huge shock, and you will have seen councillors and mayors and all sorts of people, local government, New Zealand, have all, have all come out against it. In fairness, there'll be a select committee process. The bill hasn't come out yet. Uh, a, shortened, a shortened one. And um, I can't imagine that with two parties announcing that they support a certain policy, that they're going to change the details much in that shortened select committee process. Uh, so that's your first problem, that the, the, the sales job is we're all working together. The reality is uh, they didn't tell anyone that, that might have been important about this. Uh, the second thing is that we all want to build more homes. New Zealand has a shortage of housing. It's extraordinary uh, that a country practically uninhabited has managed to create a, a shortage of homes. But, you know, we've managed that. Uh, and it's a major problem that has built up over the years under both Labor and national governments quite severely. Uh, the issue is, how do you solve it? How do you actually get more homes built? Well, the premise of this policy is that if you took away resource consenting requirements on some subdivision activity, if you said you can have three three-storey homes on any uh, section, then there'd be so many possible homes to be built that we'd end up with the supply of housing being increased. Well, actually, there's very little reason to believe that. 
Uh, and the reason is this. Uh, I'm from Auckland, where the Auckland Unitary Plan has allowed up to 420,000 theoretical dwellings for the last four years. Over that time, uh, the price of housing has gone up 35%. Why? Well, because it's one thing to say that theoretically, legally, you could build a property. It's quite another thing to get through the council building consent process. It's quite another thing uh, to get the infrastructure. But isn't this what it gets around? You'll not need the resource consent from the council. Yeah, you go, might exactly. need the building consent, but not a resource yep. consent. That's right. But that's if you look at the whole chain of building a home, as I was just going through, um, you, you may not need the uh, resource consent, but you still need to have a building consent. You still need your services uh, to be connected. Uh, you still need uh, your LINS title. You still need to pay your development cost charges, which, by the way, under this legislation, councils can set in order to account for this change. Uh, so actually, once you work it all through, uh, if, if this solution was going to solve the problem, the Auckland Unitary Plan would have already done it. It's actually all the other things uh, that are a problem that stop building getting done. And you talk to developers, they'll tell you basically the same thing. So it's not going to solve the problem. And here's the third thing. You know, some people say, oh, you're a NIMBY. Well, actually, people who have worked their whole life you know, found their partner, saved their deposit, got their, got their mortgage down uh, to have a place of their own, their own slice of paradise, uh, do actually have some legitimate expectations about what their neighbourhood looks like. Uh, we resolved those expectations with the Auckland Unitary Plan, allowing massive upzoning all over the city. Uh, to then go and say, by the way, on either side of you, people can build three storeys times three. Um, people are just going to say, whiskey, tango, foxtrot. Uh, and um, they're gonna, you're going to get massive amounts of anger and chaos. But if you haven't solved the infrastructure problems that hold us back under the Auckland Unitary Plan, it's all going to be for nothing. Uh, so, look, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly dumb political stunt. David, you've become somewhat of a hero for the fans out there of the one-liners. But Judith Collins perhaps got one over you when she said last week that this is the case of the MP for Epsom having a fight with the leader of the ACT Party and the MP for Epsom women. Is there a grain of truth in that? No, I mean, the first thing that Judith might want to think about um, is that uh, Epsom's not the only place in New Zealand with houses. And actually, um, there'll be a lot of people and you know, other electorates who um, might have exactly the same view uh, and uh, the leader of the ACT Party's thinking about them too. Uh, but second of all, uh, one thing the MP for Epsom and the leader of the ACT Party agree on uh, is actually uh, that we need good policy. And if we put forward a policy that promises a whole group of people um, that, that we're going to solve their problems and we're going to fix something, then the promise really needs to be credible. I think people have been let down enough times by Kiwi Build and you know, special housing areas and whatever else has been promised. Um, you know, what they're proposing is, is not good public policy. The other thing I just say to Judith is, you know, she wants to have a, have a crack at me. Um, you know, it doesn't really help to turn a policy disagreement into a personal disagreement. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to help her ratings to, to start sniping at her allies, to be quite honest. And final question on a, on a lighter note. In a few days, the nominations for uh, the Jonesy Awards for Government Waste, where we dust off the tuxedo, head down to Parliament, uh, and um, award the golden swine to the best of the worst of government waste. Uh, nominations close in a few days. Have you put in your nomination or who's your pick 
for the central government Jonesy winner this year? Far out. Um, well, I think it's, it's going to be pretty hard to, to go past the um, Boomer Bike Bridge to Birkenhead. Um, you know, that, that bike bridge, um, that actually, um, you know, cost, as I understand it, 50 million bucks in the planning before they decided they weren't going to do it. Now, one of our MPs, Damien Smith, asked the minister for the TAB why they weren't offering any odds on it getting completed. Um, and we now know the answer because no one would take the bet. Um, but you think about it, 50 million bucks to plan a bridge you didn't build. I mean, you know, we've had a bridge to nowhere. This is a nowhere bridge. And uh, for $50 million in a year's time, I, I could have bought you a ferry with a bike rack on it and all those bloody mammals, middle-aged men in Lycra. You know, it could have been going backwards and forwards. They could have called it a short cruise um, on the boat. Uh, it could have been fabulous, and we could have solved the problem by now. Instead, they spent $50 million to build a nowhere bridge uh, that, that doesn't exist, and uh, they thought that they were going to get away with spending $700 million. Now, I don't know who's responsible for that. You'll probably have to give multiple awards. It, it would probably be a team effort. Uh, rather than a particular, um, you know, what do you call it, uh, individual achievement. So, no, look, I'd, I'd give the Jonesy Award for, for that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think it's about, about as good as it gets. Well, for $50 million, it could be an electric ferry. David, thanks. Uh, that's a very good nomination. And, um, obviously, thanks for joining Taxpayer Talk today. No worries. Good on you.